Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Acts chapter 1 verses 12 to 26. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they arrived, they went to the room upstairs where they were staying. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the Zealot and Judas the son of James. They were all they all were in continu- they all were continually united in prayer, along with the women, including Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days Peter stood up among the brothers and sisters, the number of people who were together was about hundred and twenty, and said, Brothers and sisters, it is necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of David, foretold about Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was one of our number and shared in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field with his unrighteous wages. He fell head first, his body burst open and his intestines spilled out. This became known to all the residents of Jerusalem so that in their own language, that field is called Hakeldama, that is field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling become desolate, let no one live in it, and let someone else take his position. Therefore, from among the men who have accompanied us during the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day he was taken up from us, from among these it is necessary that one become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed to Joseph, called Barsabas, who was also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, You, Lord, know everyone's hearts. Show which of these two you have chosen to take the place in this apostolic ministry that Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots for them, and the lot fell to Matthias, and he was added to the eleven apostles. Thank you, Mariah. Let's pray, and we'll get started. Well, thank you that we can be here tonight gathered um, around uh, your word. Lord, we want to learn from your word, not just to fill our hearts or heads with knowledge, but we want to hear from your word because we want to know you. We want to know the power of your resurrection. We want to be able to examine our own hearts. We want to have joy in Jesus. We want to, your, your Holy Spirit, to bring your word to life in our hearts. So would you do that now as we're thinking about these things? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are up to week two in our series, Unstoppable, a journey through the book of Acts, how God uses the church to change the world. And tonight, I get to put on my engineering hat, which is great because I'm not an engineer. I uh, know nothing about engineering other than that, you know, like I, you know, I enjoy buildings that don't fall down and that sort of thing. Um, this could be an experiment. My, my family would tell you that, you know, my skills at like building stuff and fixing stuff extends to like Ikea furniture, which is a pretty, you know, it's a pretty good achievement, I think. Um, but as a non-engineer, I'll tell you that not all is well at our house, at the shed house. Um, at the corner of our backyard sits a shed, and I think we have a photo of it maybe somewhere up on the screen. And I just want to tell you something about this uh, shed. Um, it is not in a good uh, state, and I didn't build it, 
I did not build it, so I can't take the blame for it. You might notice that there's something wrong if you are an engineer. But the picture on the left there, um, doesn't, you can't really see anything. It just looks like a normal shed with a roller door. But if you get up close and look up the corner, you may notice that the decorative bricks around there are actually starting to separate from the structure. And um, I, I, don't, I couldn't have told you why, but I, I can tell you what others have told me um, and repeat that to you, which is that the, um, when they constructed that building about 20 years ago, they didn't properly drain the water off of the roof and um, all across the driveway in the front. And so it, what's happened is it's gradually down the bottom right-hand corner, started to erode away the sand, the soil, the sand. You know, we sang about sinking sand earlier. Soil has started to sink. As a result, the flooring has kind of fallen away, and it's caused this problem here with the bricks. And so they could collapse, and we're going to have to pull them down and kind of fix that. But see, it reminds us that the foundation of a building, even a fairly small building like a shed, is really quite important. And if you don't take the time to get it right, then you're going to have problems down the road. As a homeowner, two years into a mortgage, I can tell you that's probably the one thing that a homeowner least wants to hear, which is, is that the foundation of the thing that you just invested like a lot of money in has a problem. Because that, you know, best case scenario, you're gonna have a big repair bill. Worst case scenario, you're just gonna have to move out and forfeit most of your deposit because it's not livable. The foundation of a building is really, really important to get it right. Now, we've titled this series in Acts Unstoppable. And if you think about the picture of a church, the church is often compared in the New Testament to a building that rises up from a foundation, the foundation of Christ, of Jesus, and the apostles. And it rises up to be a beautiful building for God's glory. However, Oftentimes, as is the case, what we see, when we look at the church, we're seeing what we can see with our eyes. What we don't always see is the foundation. We don't always take time to look at the foundation of our own lives. And it's really until the cracks appear and we start to see the bricks and, you know, peeling away, and that's when we realize, oh, you know, there's, a, there's something going on at the foundation that we probably should have picked up on a while ago because now the issue is going to be a lot bigger than it would have been. So that's what we're talking We're talking about the foundations, and that's what we see in chapter 1, because this is this period of time, this 40 days in between when Jesus ascends to the Father. That's what Simon talked about last week. And then next week, we're going to hear about the Holy Spirit descending and coming down, being poured out on the church. So we're in this in-between kind of waiting time tonight. And what do you do? Do you don't just sit around and watch Netflix? They're thinking about the foundations. Do we have the foundations right? They're using this time to examine and establish foundations that will lead to a building that will stand the test of time. So we're going to look at the blueprints of the building tonight, and what is it that makes this foundation an unstoppable structure that has lasted for 2,000 years and will last until Jesus returns? And we're going to see how those same ingredients that go into the foundation of the church are also present in your life. They're also crucial for making your life, the foundations of your life, stand the test of pressures and difficulties and trials and setbacks. 
So it's important that we consider these things, the way that the early church considered these things. And we're going to start at the beginning in verse 12. We're going to look at some of these key ingredients. The very first ingredient we're going to, we run into right in the first verse of this passage is obedience. Obedience to Jesus. And let me tell you what I mean. Verse 12, the disciples had just witnessed the ascension. They were up on a mountain, the Mount of Olives, which is actually just a fairly low hill, you know, lower than Mount Lofty. It's not an impressive mountain by any means. Um, and the text says that they went on a Sabbath day's journey back to Jerusalem. And a Sabbath day's journey, that might sound really ar- arduous whenever you hear the word journey or day's journey, but actually a Sabbath day's journey, in fact, could not exceed one kilometer in distance. And it was downhill. It would have taken them about 15 minutes to make this journey. Why would, did they bother to go back from the Mount of Olives to Jerusalem, down the hill uh, to Jerusalem? Well, if you go back to verse 4 in chapter 1, you'll notice that Jesus gave them some instructions before he left. He said to wait. And to not just any place, but wait here in Jerusalem, the very city where he was persecuted, the very city where he was uh, crucified, the very city where his disciples had abandoned him, where he was betrayed, wait there in that city until I give you the Holy Spirit. And at that point, at that time, you will have power to be my witnesses. But until then, until then, you need to wait. And so that's why they go back to Jerusalem. They obey when it doesn't really make a lot of sense. None of these men that we know of were originally from Jerusalem. They were not Jerusalem natives. They were from Galilee, which is in the northern part of the country. And yet there they are going back to this upper room, not their own homes, the comfort of their own homes, but to this sort of common meeting place, like a a little conference room in a hotel, if you like. And there's about 120 of them. And see, that's the essential, that that was ingredient number one. We are going to, even though Jesus is no longer in our presence, we don't see him, we're not hearing his voice audibly, but we're going to learn right now from day one what it means to obey the voice of Jesus even when he's not there. And you see, that is what is so key for us as well, because we can convince ourselves very easily that without Jesus right there in our midst, that obedience is really something that we do when we're like baby Christians, and then we kind of grow out of it. And we start, you know, we go on autopilot or we start, you know, figuring it out how to do the Christian life on our own without looking to the very words of Jesus. And that's when we get in all sorts of trouble and the foundation starts to crack. So that was ingredient number one is obedience to Jesus. Number two, going on to verse 13, we're going to look at the eyewitnesses, the eyewitnesses. The writers of the New Testament, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, So Luke, in this case, he wanted you to know again the names of these 11 men called the 11 apostles. There was 12, and then Judas Iscariot uh, betrayed Jesus, and then he, as you find out later, he goes and he committed suicide, and so now there's only 11. And they're repeated. Their names are repeated. Do you realize that only three of the men in this list, so Peter, John, and James, have like speaking roles in this movie? The rest of them, you do not hear anything about them after this moment. It's the only time they're even really named. Even Matthias, who we're going to find, you know, they spend quite a bit of time. There's this process of appointing the replacement for Judas. 
Matthias, it's the only place you hear his name, right here in chapter 1. He never shows up again in the book of Acts. There's lots of things written about these men in church tradition, but in terms of in the book of Acts itself, this is the only place they're listed, and yet it's important that we know their names. Why? If you go back to Luke, Luke's gospel that he wrote before he wrote the book of Acts, he records Jesus in chapter 6 when he originally handpicked and called each of these 12 men by name. And then he says in chapter 22, after Judas had betrayed him and left their number, so they were down to 11, he says this. This is in chapter 22, verse 37, I believe. He tells them, the 11, that they will in the future, these men will eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. See, that number, 12 apostles, was really important. Because back in the, the original sort of people of God, the Old Testament, Israel, there were 12, Jacob, who was also called Israel, he had 12 sons. And each of those sons had sons, and they had sons, and they became tribes. They became 12 tribes that constituted the people of God. And if you wanted to draw near to God, if you wanted to have a place in the kingdom, a place at the table, you had to be a member of one of those tribes. That was the way you had, could relate to God. And yet now here we have these 12 men soon to be 12 men, that are now representing, spiritually speaking, the 12 tribes of Israel. They are the foundational men of the new people of God, the church. If you go all the way to the book of Revelation, chapter 21, there's a picture of the new heavens and the new earth, the the new Jerusalem coming down out of the clouds, and what do you see if you go and read that? There's a picture of this wall around the city, and inscribed into the wall are 12 names, the names of these 12 men. It's very important for, you know, we may think, well, I still don't understand why, but the Holy Spirit wanted you to know in 2018 the names of these 12 men, because your faith rests on the foundation of who they are And, more importantly, what they taught. What they taught. The number 12, you see, was not an accident. There had to be 12 men on the field. And Matthias wasn't just like the the 12th man in cricket that just comes in if somebody gets hurt. Like Like, they were all 12 on the field. They were in the game. They were the apostles. And see, unlike, you know, over in, I've heard, I haven't seen it myself, but there's, you know, those 12 apostles, or there were, over in Victoria, now they're, what, down to like eight? You know, in this case, they had to replace, one fell over and they had to replace him. Okay, so that's what we're going to look at for the rest of chapter one. Think back to when Jesus was condemned. The 11 who were left after Judas deserted them, they were terrified. They assumed that when Jesus died, they would be next. And so when Jesus rose to life, he appears to the women at the tomb, and then he appears to Peter and the 11. And he, he appears to prove to them first that not even death was going to stop this kingdom. He wanted them to know that death was defeated. And now these same 11, soon to be 12, would go on after this chapter 1, to suffer setback after setback, threat 
after threat after threat, and yet somehow they knew that the threats against them were futile. They could not be stopped. Well, they, physically as men and women, they could be stopped. They had a finite expiration date, if you like, but the gospel and the church that they were founding would not be stopped. And see, your faith, your confidence in the gospel and in the words of Jesus rests on the confidence and the teaching of these eyewitnesses. And the Holy Spirit wants you to know that. Jesus said in John chapter 17, one of the last prayers that he prayed with his disciples, with his apostles before he was killed, he says this. He says, while I was with them, I was protecting them by your name that you had given me. I guarded them and not one of them is lost except the son of destruction, that's Judas, so that the scripture may be fulfilled. The fact that those 11, soon to be 12 men, are there and in the foundation of the church and in the foundation of your faith was predicted in the Scripture. Now it's fulfilled, not only here in Acts 1, but in your life. How is it, though, that your faith rests on the faith of these original 12? In two ways. Number one, they were the ones who saw Jesus die. They were with him from the moment time he was baptized until the time he died and the time he rose again. They saw him be raised to life. And Paul says this when he's preaching the gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if this did not happen, if Jesus did not live, die, and rise again, then your faith is dead. It's useless. It's hopeless. Just pack it up. This is all just a big charade. If these men were wrong, if they were lying and trying to deceive people in order to get power for themselves, if that's what the case is, then Christianity absolutely falls apart. It's a hoax, a fairy story. But if they really did see him alive, if what their testimony was true, if they did touch him, if they did hear from him, if they did eat with him, if they did see him ascend to the Father, then it changes everything. All of human history, your place in the world, depends on the testimony of these men being true. And so here's the second thing. Notice what the earliest believers were doing when they gather together. If you go over to chapter 2, verse 42, it says, and these were the earliest believers, the ones who, the thousands that had just believed at Pentecost, we'll read about that next week. It says, and what did they do? They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the teaching of these 12 men. That's where they went. They said, we, we recognize that you saw him with your own eyes. You are eyewitnesses and that you have authority to take the t- very words of Jesus, the very truth of Jesus, the very teaching of Jesus and pass that on to the next generation through this recorded testimony. And we have their testimony today. It has not been lost. It is here in the Bible for you. Your faith rests on their testimony being true. You have a relationship today with the Creator, with your Creator, with Jesus, with His Spirit, because of the testimony of these men, because of their faithfulness, because of their perseverance, because of their call. Do you consider yourself as someone who is devoted to the Apostles' teaching? Or have you graduated from this? 
If you're a Christian, you should be devoted to their words because their words are so much more important than mine or any other preacher you might listen to, any other author you might read, because God chose for you to be instructed by these 12 men. You have the full content of their teaching here. Live in this book because your faith falls apart without it. This is the rebar in the foundation, if you like. Third ingredient, verse 14. These original 120 who were there in this conference room, what were they doing when they were waiting? Again, they weren't just all sitting around on their phones. What were they doing? The scripture tells us in verse 14, they were continually united in prayer. To wait on God is to pray. To pray is to wait on God. These, these verbs are used almost synonymously in Scripture. In other translations, it says they were all in one accord. Remember back to verse 4. What did Jesus instruct them to do? He said, wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit. And this is what waiting looks like. It looks like continual prayer. Men and women together with the apostles. There's Jesus' mother is there. His brothers are there. And what were they praying? If you were hearing their prayers, what would they sound like? Luke, he doesn't tell us the exact words, but we have a pretty good idea. If you look later on in Acts, some of the actual prayers that are recorded, let me tell you what they were not praying for. They were not praying for comfort. They weren't praying for safety. They weren't praying for, you know, quick and easy life. They were praying Jesus' promise of the Holy Spirit into reality. He said, I have promised. The Father has promised the Holy Spirit. He is coming. And they were there saying, God, you promised this. You promised your spirit. Send your spirit. Give us power to be your witnesses. You promised you would do it. Give us that power. That's what we want. That's what they were praying. See, we need to be bold to be his witness. We need to be united. Do we pray for those things? Continually, Do we pray together for those things? Because these prayers were then added into the mix of the foundation upon which this unstoppable church was built. See, if your experience is like mine, the enemy of God is moving to silence your prayers. To convince you that you've got enough runs on the board, you've got a good team, you've got skills, got knowledge, you've got influence. Prayer is nice, but it's not necessary. And yet Jesus taught his disciples again and again to pray. Jesus prayed when he was tempted. He prayed when he was facing death. He prayed before he healed people. I read somewhere online this week that the first sign of pride and perhaps the clearest sign of pride in your heart is rarely loud boasting and bragging, but prayerlessness. It's not the loud bragger that we should be most worried about in terms of pride, but it's the silent prayer room that we should be more worried about. You want to persevere in faith to the end? You want to see breakthroughs in your life? Then pray like these men and women. A church that does not pray is not a New Testament church. It is a stoppable church. And I'm thankful that the leaders of this church are passionate about prayer. And I have so much to learn from them, and so do you, so get around it. Fourth ingredient, similar to number two. Verse 15, Peter stands up in the meeting room. He's got 119 pairs of eyes locked on him, and here's how he starts his speech in verse 16. 
He says, brothers and sisters, it was necessary that the scripture be fulfilled, that the Holy Spirit through the mouth of David foretold about Judas. And let's pause there for a minute. What's he saying? See, Peter shares Jesus' own confidence in the scriptures, specifically the Old Testament, that these words are true. He quotes them. He says, there's promises there. And God is not forgetting about them. He doesn't just sweep them away. He says, these scriptures must be fulfilled. They were inspired by the Holy Spirit. David didn't write these psalms by himself. No, he was inspired by the same Holy Spirit that they were in that room waiting for. That's why we so strongly disagree with any teachers who say that the Old Testament is somehow invalid or no longer useful for Christians. No, Jesus didn't say that. The apostles themselves held up the Old Testament. That's all they had. They said, this is scripture. This is true. This is necessary. We must act on it. We cannot be witnesses without it. And they did. Peter takes two verses from the Psalm, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, and he takes them to be prophecies about Judas, the betrayer, and why they need to appoint someone to replace him. And see, Peter doesn't act this way because it made sense. They could have handled what they were about to do. I mean, there was only 120 of them. Do they really need a, a 12th man? It didn't make sense. It wasn't common sense. It wasn't because, you know, they read a leadership manual somewhere that said 12 is a better number than 11 because it's even, so we've got to get another guy. They, they searched the scriptures and they said, this is, this is what, this is God's will. This is his way. I wonder if we have the same confidence in the wisdom of the Bible today. Because often I find myself having a lot more confidence in my own wisdom or my own ability to figure things out. My own ability to Google stuff and cut and paste quotes that sound good rather than just getting into the word. See, the church that's unstoppable and the faith that's unstoppable is built on a rock-solid confidence in Scripture. All of it. And some of us, we need to move beyond the basics. We get John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That is a, fa a verse to build your life on, but it's one of thousands of verses to build your life on. So move on to verse 17, and then on to Jonah, and then on to Jude. We have so many tools available to study Scripture well. So there's no reason to be afraid of Leviticus anymore because you can't read Hebrew. I can't read it either. But I can read a study Bible, and so can you. I actually saw someone on Facebook, and I, I mean, I get where they're coming from, but I saw somebody on Facebook this week make this statement, said, the quickest way to kill the Holy Spirit in your life, well, let's stop. kill the Holy Spirit, let's, let's move beyond that. The quickest way to kill the Holy Spirit in your life is to go to Bible college, end quote. Now, I've, I've been around long enough to know that, yes, there are some Bible colleges that will not help your faith, some. But if we ever get to the place of thinking that studying careful, thorough, rigorous study of the very words of God will kill the Holy Spirit in your life, then man, let's pack it up. These are the words of life. These are the words of, that the Holy Spirit 
has given for our good, for our growth. We cannot live without them. We will starve. We need to have the word in us if we want to have the same kind of unstoppable faith that the apostles had in the face of opposition, in the face of temptation, in the face of apathy, so that we might know him and enjoy him forever. So far, we've seen four ingredients in the mix of this foundation pour. We've got the obedience to Jesus. We've got trust in the eyewitnesses. We've got continuous prayer and confidence in the scriptures. And Acts chapter 1 ends with what I think is the final ingredient that is perhaps the most important one, and that is the electing grace of Jesus. The electing grace of Jesus. So let's look first at how Matthias, the 12th man, was chosen. And some of us, we might jump to the end, verse 26, and, and say, okay, well, they, they cast lots, which is like, you know, they rolled a dice or flipped a coin, and the lot fell to Matthias. Lot, lots were these stones that were marked, and depending on which way they fell, would determine the outcome of a decision. So it might seem then to you that the outcome of this 12th man was just a, like the, the decision was a bit random, like they didn't really care which one it was, and so, well, just toss a coin and... You know, we'll pick whoever comes up. Seems a bit random, right? But if you notice back in verses 21 and 22, this was only the final step in a long process of discernment. See, they had these criteria that they established for who could fill this role, who could replace Judas. So what were they? Well, this 12th man, well, he had to be a man. We see that in verse 21. He had to be a man who was in the wider circle of disciples and had been in that wider circle from the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, from the point he was baptized until he was taken up to the Father. He had to have seen Jesus alive both before and after his death and resurrection so that he could proclaim Jesus is alive that Jesus is Lord with the utmost confidence. We also assume that this man had to be of good character, judging by their prayer in verse 24 that you know, Jesus sees everyone's hearts. Doesn't, just like in Samuel with choosing the king in the Old Testament, it doesn't just look at the outward appearance, but at the heart. We see that show up in verse 24. See, they couldn't afford to have another Judas that looked good on the outside and on the inside was just full of greed and love of money. And at the end of this filtration process, this you know, first round, second round of interviews, they're left with two candidates for the job. There's Joseph called Barsabbas. He also had a stage name, I guess, Justice. And then Matthias. Neither of these men show up before or after this point in the narrative, and yet both of them are qualified. The only thing missing here is the word of Jesus himself. Because remember the other 11? Jesus called them by name. He just walked into the crowd and said, you, follow me. You, you, follow me. That's the only thing missing is Jesus himself here in the room. See, that's where the lots come in. Go back to Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33. We read this. The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. From the Lord. 
from the Lord. That's the key. They needed to know that this decision was from the Lord. That's why they cast lots. They weren't being flippant at all. They weren't being random. They were submitting themselves to the sovereign wisdom of God who sees the heart. See, we don't read anything about Matthias after this point. So some scholars have even argued that the 11 apostles made a mistake. They should have just waited because it was actually supposed to be Paul. He was really the guy that was going to replace Judas, and that's why we read so much about him. But if you go and look at Paul's own teaching, Paul himself says, I am like this, I'm kind of this illegitimate apostle. Don't even like, I don't even like being called that because I wasn't there. I didn't, you know, I didn't fit the criteria. I didn't see him there at, back at the beginning. And he point, whenever he's, he is challenged in terms of what he's teaching, what does he do? He points back to the apostles. He says, I'm not inventing something new. I'm just explaining, taking what they preach to a Jewish audience and preaching it to a Gentile audience. So it doesn't matter that we don't hear Matthias's name after this point. See, that's true for most Christian witnesses. The vast majority of Christian witnesses in the history of the unstoppable church, you will never know their name. And yet, if it were not for their existence, you and I would not be sitting here today. God knows their name. He sees the heart. He sees your heart just like he saw Matthias' heart. And he knows exactly the gifts that he's given you. He knows exactly what he is going to do with your life in his mission-building project. Let me give you a quick case study on why this ingredient, this electing grace of Jesus, who chooses women and men to make up his church, why is this so important? Take a second to consider who is making the speech. This is perhaps the first sermon recorded in the history of the church, is, what, is Peter's kind of sermonette here in chapter 1. Peter. Peter and Judas, you see, the one who they were replacing had a lot in common. Both men had, in their own way, joined the opposition against Jesus in the lead-up to his execution. Judas, of course, as Peter points out here, was a guide to those who arrested Jesus. But then what happened right after that? What's the very next scene in the movie? We, you know, The director cuts to Peter there in the courtyard as Jesus was being tortured inside and on trial inside. Peter's out in the courtyard like swearing, literally swearing at a 16-year-old girl, saying, I, I have no idea who that man is. Same guy who's giving the very first sermon right here. What's the difference between Peter, Peter the denier and Judas the betrayer? See, after Peter denied Jesus, he heard the rooster crow and, and Jesus had told him it would happen. And there's this, in, I think two out of the four Gospels record that at that moment, as soon as Peter heard the rooster crow, that he saw Jesus and they locked eyes for just a brief moment. So powerful. And it says at that moment, Peter went out, ran outside and he wept bitterly. Tears of repentance. Matthew 27 records that Judas also had remorse 
But his remorse was, he, he takes the money, the 30 coins that he had gotten from the temple, and he, and he goes back to the temple, and he, he kind of chucks, them at the, chucks the money back at the priest. He said, I don't want this on my hands. What's he doing in that act? He's saying, I want to absolve myself of my guilt. Here is the evidence of my sin. Take it off my hands. He's still, right up to the very end, he's trying to save himself. And at the moment, he realizes he can't do it. He can't wash his sin away on his own. He's so in despair that he goes out and he kills himself. Peter repents. He was wrecked. See, Judas is the picture of everyone in the end who, try, who holds on to that rope of trying to save themselves. If that's you, eventually that rope will wrap itself around your neck. It will destroy you. But to let go of that rope and to trust only in Jesus, the one who was killed and the one who defeated death, to repent and submit to him is the path of life. Jesus restored Peter. Tells him to go spend the rest of your life feeding my sheep. And that's exactly what he goes about doing. And it's all of grace. Matthias here appears out of nowhere. He's got no track record really to speak of other than these criteria. Just that he had been with Jesus and that he believed that he was alive. And Jesus picks him to be the 12th man. Peter, who was already essentially the team captain, he had failed Jesus in his hour of greatest need. He failed Jesus and the entire team of apostles, and yet Jesus, by grace, by grace, by grace, restores him. See, Judas is a reminder to us, a caution, a reminder that you can look the part. You can spend your whole life hanging with church people or talking the language and have a heart that's still far away from Jesus, that's full of greed and love for the world and love for money and love for self and wants to cling on and try to save myself. And all the while, nobody around you would know the, would know the difference. Because you're not saved by who you hang out with. You're not saved by your track record. You're not saved by the words that come out of your mouth. You're saved by the grace of Jesus. On the other side of the coin, we have Peter who... Man, he failed miserably. And yet by the grace of Jesus, the fact that he is now the the de facto leader of the church had nothing to do with his failure. It had nothing to do with his track record, but that Jesus graciously restored him. And Jesus has graciously restored you. See, the new you The new creation you is not simply a shinier, sharper version of the old you. The new you, the new creation you, is a product of Jesus electing grace on your life. That's why you're here. That's that's it. That's the only reason that you're here. The only reason you have faith. The only reason you will stand. The only reason that you will remain a part of his unstoppable church. It's his love and grace for you. That's it. So what are you holding on to? Are you holding on to today the rope of self-salvation, of doing more, of knowing more, of giving more, of earning more? Because that rope will tangle you up in pride and bitterness if it hasn't already. 
Or are you holding on to the cross of Jesus by faith? Every day picking it up, believing that what he did for you is your only hope and your only joy. The gospel of Jesus, a free grace, if that's not at the core of who you are and who you understand yourself to be, then as soon as stuff gets hard, your faith, your faith will do what the foundation underneath my little garage has done. It will crack, it will sink, it will fade. That's why this foundational stuff, this waiting is so important. It's not just an intermission that we can get up and go to the toilet before the real stuff happens in chapter 2. This is so critical that we take the time and go, what's making up the foundation of your life? What are you trusting in at the very bottom? Is it the grace of Jesus or are you trusting in yourself? Next week, we'll see where all this foundation pouring is going. I, like, I, like I said at the beginning, I'm not an engineer, but I do enjoy watching buildings go up. But like when they're doing the foundation work or when they're like, you know, building like a tall skyscraper and they've got to you know, drive those piles way deep into the bedrock, that's kind of boring because you go back, if you're just like watching it happen day after day, it doesn't seem like they're making much progress because all the, what's happening is you can't see it. It's all invisible. It's under the ground. But it's so essential. You can't skip that part or the whole thing comes crashing down. See, just everything is set at the end of chapter one. The 12th man is there. He's on the field and we're ready to play the game. And the Holy Spirit's coming in chapter two next week. And that's when we start to see the building rise. So get ready. We're going to see this building come together. We're going to see where you fit in it. You'll begin to recognize his handiwork, not only in the church, but in your own heart. Let me close with the words of Jude, one of the brothers of Jesus, who was there in that room. Here's what he says. Now to him who is able to protect you from stumbling like Judas, I added the like Judas bit, and to make you stand in the presence of his glory without blemish and with great joy, like Peter, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, power, and authority before all time, now, and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you that getting the foundations right in your church Getting the foundations right in our hearts is not ultimately our work, but it's the gracious work of your Spirit in us. And yet you graciously allow us to cooperate with that work as we seek to live lives of faithful obedience to you, to Jesus, to your word, to the eyewitness accounts in Scripture in prayer that perseveres. Father, help us to learn these habits of grace so that our foundation might be strong as individuals, as a community, and as your church that spans the globe. Thank you for this reminder again of 
what our faith rests on. The death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Lord, as we celebrate these, this ritual together, as we take these elements, Lord, again, remind us of why we're a Christian. Remind us of what you did. Remind us of what Jesus did, of his sacrifice for our sakes. We pray this in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.